the mother military. Welcome to TopCast and to an episode more an editorial than an explainer video, although I'll be doing some explaining and maybe some historical reflection. This is mainly my opinion on a certain topic de jour, so to speak. And as you would have seen from the title of the YouTube or podcast episode, it's called The Mother Military. There have been concerns of late raised across many Western nations of what appears to have been a turn in the traditions of our defence forces, the militaries of our world, our physical bulwark, so to speak, against the enemies of the Enlightenment, what we turn to when diplomacy fails. Our defence forces, our militaries in the West, have seemingly been focused to a worrying extent to some of us upon implementing certain political ideologies, which could even be seen in part to be anti-enlightenment. Everyone is, of course, for diversity, certainly of ideas in the West, and even diversity of people, yes. But should, for example, physical standards in the military be lowered to accommodate, let's say, those with diverse abilities? So, should we lower the capacity to run and carry weapons, cardiovascular and strength requirements, fitness in other words, the physical training standards, because, I don't know, let's say some people are overweight, or should we demand that they meet the minimum physical standards? Militaries across the world, forever and a day, have a long tradition of physical standards, because well, when the chips are down, you want the fighting men and women to be ready to fight. They need to be in tip-top shape and ever ready. We cannot predict when a disaster will happen and they need to be called upon. Importantly, defence forces exist as deterrents. This may be as or even more important a function that they serve when set beside their literal fighting capabilities – the military needs to be seen to be a scary thing. It's rather like the argument for nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons exist at all because, well, our enemies have them. It deters them from attacking us because if they do so, our superior firepower, in particular in the form of the firepower from the United States, its nuclear capacity, and secondarily that of the UK, Europe, NATO, and the military capabilities of everywhere else, like South Korea, Japan, Israel, Australia, and Canada, would absolutely obliterate any attack from anywhere in the world. So finally and completely, there would be little left of any attacking nation or coalition of nations that attacked any member of the Allied West. The Western nations, led by the US and the UK and NATO, are a terrifying and dangerous potential foe, utterly unrivaled by anything else on Earth. Our weapons say, do not test us. Do not push us too far. You would lose and you would lose badly. You might have weapons as well, but this would not, not be the trope of mutually assured destruction. It would be a one-sided annihilation. Sure, our potential enemies in China and Russia have nukes. We get that. But they are of a relatively ancient kind, outdated. And we've seen already recently Russia in action in Ukraine. This 
so-called once-upon-a-time superpower is basically relying on ancient, outdated military hardware. Poorly trained soldiers who have very little commitment to the cause, bad leadership and hopeless tactics, and as I say, superseded technology. China is little better. Should these guys launch nukes, let's say, NATO would shoot them down almost immediately. And even if one did get through the defences to cause a disaster somewhere, the rain of fire that would come down in response on all their nuclear facilities with such ferocity and speed, those nations would be bombed back almost to a literal Stone Age. This, thankfully, is something the West does not want. And so it is a virtuous thing that they know what we could do. And we know they know what we could do and what they could do. And what they could do, set beside what we can do, is not much. This is how things really do stand at the moment. The difference in defence and attack capabilities of Western nations versus those who oppose us really is the difference between Western technology more broadly in the form of Apple and Tesla and Google and OpenAI versus, well, whatever Russia's got and the cheap imitations of those things that China steals mainly from the US and South Korea from time to time. It is the difference between nations in the West, the Enlightenment tradition, dynamic societies that tend in the direction of a tradition of criticism and the more static societies that tend in the direction of authoritarianism. The entire difference there is drawn along those lines, which is why we can know that in any battle between one side and the other, we would be victorious. It would be a one-sided battle, as it is a one-sided battle when it comes to technology broadly, medicine broadly, freedom and liberty broadly, an open press broadly, the list is long, as it would be in a military conflict. It would be a one-sided annihilation of one versus the other. Just to linger on this for the moment before I get to the main point of this podcast, this is not merely a story of numbers, although the differences are staggering. Look at the difference here in terms of military spending of NATO nations, where we have over a trillion dollars being spent and something like a third of that number being spent by the coalition of China and Russia. On average, compared to the rest of the world, Western nations, NATO, spend 141% of the global average on defence, whereas China and Russia only spend 44% compared to the average on defence. Far, far less. And that's merely the numbers. That spending of money due to the difference in wealth between the nations makes all the difference. It is the difference between well-paid soldiers and those who can't be bothered fighting and instead want a better life, likely in Western nations where we are. It is also the difference between more and less effective equipment, even if the total number of, let's say, guns and artillery might be less in Western nations. Who cares about those numbers? Our guns and artillery are better, period. Many in the West who have a naive understanding of how these things work 
Look at the numbers of soldiers, let's say, active military personnel or those that might be available to fight and think, wow, China and Russia outdo us in some ways. Look at these numbers. In terms of active personnel, NATO has more, something like 3.1 million. China and Russia, a little over 3 million. So it's similar there. The reserves, China and Russia, have far more than what we do. In terms of available for military, we, by we I mean NATO, sure Australia's not in NATO, but we would be on the side of NATO, obviously, in any conflict. Available for military service, 205, 206 million. China and Russia, 420, 421 million. That's a lot more, that's more than double. But really, really? Would all 420 fighting men and women really be committed to the fight? Would they? <laughs> I don't think so. I think a lot of them would want to leave, as they do right now during peacetime. In wartime, they'd absolutely want to leave those countries. So who cares about those numbers? Moreover, even if we just focus on the active personnel where the numbers are similar, who's better trained? Who's more motivated? Who actually knows how to operate the equipment they have? <laughs> Who has equipment that actually works and won't run out of ammunition or fuel or fail just due to a lack of maintenance? And in modern warfare, yes, sure, ground forces are important, but the overwhelming difference comes down to air power in any modern war. And we can see here the difference in total number of aircraft of NATO versus China. We completely outclass them here. Nowadays, air power makes all the difference in terms of devastating the occupants of the nations of the aggressor. That is what makes the difference in morale in any modern war. Western fighter jets and bombers are simply streets ahead of anything China and Russia have, which are at best poor copies of Western military technology. And again, how well maintained are Chinese and Russian craft. If the Ukraine war is anything to go by, not very. And how reliable are their logistical lines? How well protected are their airports? Can we easily bomb their runways and destroy what little air forces they do have before they can ever use the equipment they have? And as Jocko Willink points out, Western nations employ a tactic known as decentralized command. China and Russia are authoritarian to the core. No one's willing to do anything for fear of being literally lined up against the wall and shot, so they won't take the initiative, politically and militarily. They will always await orders. That's their tradition. And who's giving the orders in those countries? Other people who won't give any orders until they're told exactly what to do by the dictators at the top. And as I'm speaking in 2023, that is Vladimir Putin in Russia and Xi Jinping in China. But the US, the UK and NATO don't operate that way. We have a different set of military traditions now. The officers and soldiers of those militaries, modern Western militaries, are trained to think creatively, be proactive and take charge. This too makes all the difference a creative approach to fighting. It's not as much top-down. Sure, it still is top-down, but it is far more an individualist approach. Of course, there's absolutely discipline in Western militaries and orders are given. Of course, that thing is similar. 
But the orders are in the form of objectives, and everyone at every rank knows they are responsible. In authoritarian regimes, everyone is too afraid to take the initiative for fear of stepping out of line. But the West rewards sensible stepping out of line, taking the initiative, being a leader. In China and Russia, there is only one leader. And he does not share power. So in modern military conflicts, it's not just a story of numbers. It's a story of cultures and capabilities. It is about modernity versus aging and decaying defence material. It is often said, for example, that North Korea has one of the largest armies on Earth. Well, okay. But you dig in and you notice a few things. Firstly, the soldiers are paid terribly. How committed would they be to a war when they begin to starve? Worse, what's their equipment like? I can tell you, I've read the accounts and recent history on this, and it is kind of hilarious in certain respects. There are just these laughable tales of soldiers unable to drive their own trucks because they've never learned to. They don't have the money for the fuel to go around training every soldier who would need to drive a truck during wartime how to drive the truck because they don't have the resources, number one. But number two, there's also these ridiculous authoritarian rules. And the overwhelming majority of weapons they have are decades old. They've got insufficient fuel for their vehicles and insufficient training of people who would operate those vehicles. They've got insufficient ammunition. Morale as low as anywhere on the planet. A place where the military themselves, the frontline soldiers, are as likely to turn on their own leaders or just surrender as attack any invading force. So numbers are never the whole story. They're barely any part of the story. And all of what I've said just there about North Korea applies in part two to China and Russia. We've seen that in Ukraine. These places with these huge militaries are actually weak militarily. Sure, you can Google numbers about how many tanks Russia and China have versus the West, or how much artillery they have, and it might look as if Russia and China on some metric have more. But how effective are they? How old are they? What is their range and accuracy? In the first Gulf War, a war-hardened Iraqi military fresh from fighting Iran and with vast numbers of powerful tanks with experienced units inside them were easily defeated in a range war by the US. The United States, there to defend Kuwait from the invading Iraqis, simply destroyed Iraqi tank after tank one at a time because they were firing from beyond the range of the old Iraqi Soviet tanks. It was an obliteration. This included, among other battles, the so-called Battle of Medina Ridge. And I remember as a young boy in high school, getting up early in the morning in 1991 before the sun rose to watch the latest news about this and other tank battles because, well, my father was once a tank driver in what's called the CMF, the Citizen Military Forces in Australia in the late 1960s, early 1970s. So I heard about tanks and I was excited about tanks and, you know, being a little boy and here I was witnessing the first real life televised war happening before my eyes on the screen. And so I was fixated on the details. The M1 Abrams tanks simply outclassing the Soviet T-72 tanks of Iraq 
Those T-72 tanks had proven themselves in previous wars over and again, but they were no match for the modern American tanks. Does anyone doubt that even with China and Russia having upgraded some of their material, that it's not still true today? Whatever China, Russia, North Korea, whoever, whatever they've got is still going to be ancient by comparison to what we have, superseded by the US, the UK, NATO, South Korea, Israel and others. Look, Israel once took on the militaries of five nations who simultaneously invaded it in 1948. Five nations they took on at once with no help. And they won. (laughs) Israel won. And ever since, this nation has had to live in a region where nations still have a policy to this day that they should not exist, that they should be pushed into the sea, that they are illegitimate. And on the global scale, in the United Nations, that Israel's defending of themselves is somehow an attack. And so it goes. This is what David Deutsch refers to as the pattern which undergirds anti-Semitism. It is maintaining the legitimacy of hurting Jews. But let me not go down that road right now. Among many other factors, not least superior ideas and the greater moral claim and stronger allies, Israel itself simply has better technology than those surrounding it. More committed and better trained fighters and tactics. And they are of the West. They are in the Enlightenment tradition a tradition of criticism. So this tiny place in the Middle East is an island absolutely bristling with power. Now multiply that by an order of magnitude and you've got something like the UK and the US, NATO and their allies. But we cannot be complacent. They, the enemies of the West, are bellicose. They are plagued with bad ideas. They, our enemies, are likely to make silly errors putting themselves, their own people, in danger, and hence our people as well. They are a danger to the world, in short, these regimes, and so we must ever be on guard with powerful defence forces to deter them from making silly errors. So it is also a difference of ideas. Authoritarianism and anti-democratic institutions and anti-enlightenment ideals not only make nations weak and their people supine, but also militaries weak and soldiers supine. This difference only grows over time, especially as members of the weaker societies look to the West with envy and admiration. And many of them leave to come here. It is no accident there is a net movement out of Russia and China to other places. The USA is the most desirable place in the world. The UK, NATO countries more broadly, as well as Australia, New Zealand, Canada and Israel, are not far behind. People are fighting to get into those places and out of places like China, Russia and North Korea. Indeed, with North Korea, the regime there is fighting to keep people in. (laughs) Another difference that makes all the difference in the world. So all of that, everything I've said so far, is just a preamble. Because my point here is, why would we ever want to do anything to make it seem like we are taking a backward step in the eyes of our enemies? In becoming, let's say, more like them? In particular, why would we want to turn our military from being the sharp point of our worldview into something 
far more nebulous and distracted from its central mission to defend, to be a physical fighting force, to become more mothering, the mother military, in other words. Mothers are powerful, of course. Mothers defend their children. It's true. And to the death, they would. But they don't, in general, attack their own children. They are the soft place for children to fall. The traditional role of mother and father has evolved for a reason. And while there are many aspects of these traditional gender roles to criticise, it is important to notice some aspects of how the traditional parenting roles, as they are understood, even apply to modern militaries and societies. The concept of a mother government and a mother military exists, for example, in North Korea, a place I've studied to some extent. And I live with my own personal Douglas Murray, who is an expert in this area. And he has informed me over many years about this kind of thing. And this is what I'm going to explain to you. Some of his perspective on this. This is Jeremy Allen, who is a literal expert in Korea and Asia with university degrees in that area, but more importantly than that, someone who is absolutely committed to studying the history and the modern politics of this area. And what I'm about to say to you is a mingling of my ideas with his ideas. The Kims, the Kim regime in North Korea, and the Communist Party aren't just the fathers of the nation. They're the mothers of the nation too. It is a trope, and perhaps unfair, but observed by people like Jordan Peterson, for example, that while men will engage in physical fighting when conflict arises between them, the female reaction to conflict, to dissent, or to being perceived as others not loving them enough, is not to engage in a physical confrontation quite so often, but rather to gossip and publicly shame, and then to rally your friends around you. Now, this gossip, shame and rally style, this feminine way of engaging in conflict, is precisely what happens to people in North Korea who say anything about the mother government. The gossip happens when the inminbam, which is a kind of community leader that exists in every town in North Korea, notices something amiss. The shaming happens through literal weekly criticism sessions. Look that up. And then the rally happens through getting the society, government and arms of the government, the police, the law courts and the military, to side with them, the gossip mongers, against you, the subject of the gossip and the rumour, because you might have said something against the mother government. So what's this got to do with us? Who cares what they do in North Korea? Well, this is an exact reflection of what has come to be known as cancel culture in our society where gossip, shame and rally is the normal way to deal with a dissenting view nowadays. Modern woke culture can be seen in much the same way. You are supposed to love it and can't be ungrateful to it because it is, at least in large part, a movement which claims to be by women for women, using feminine rather than masculine urges and emotional tendencies, and the woke see themselves as doing something fundamentally good for everyone, because while masculinity is toxic, femininity is the anti-venom. At the heart of today's cultural landscape in the West, 
while to hurt a man's feelings is okay because men should suck it up, to hurt a woman's feelings is to transgress a terrible taboo. And this hurting of feelings can come down to mere criticism, no matter how valid. Under woke culture, women should never be criticised under this mode of thinking, but rather they should always be validated. They need to be validated and affirmed, as do LGBTQIA plus people and other minorities, while men are seen as the cause of all or almost all society's wrongs. So, of course, it's only men who are, according to this ideology, only men are the valid recipients of criticism. Again, this is on this view, mind you, on the woke view, not in reality. We see it all the time in advertising. The advertising trope is the stupid father and the wise mother. It is Homer Simpson versus Marge and Lisa. It is Peter Griffin versus Lois. It is Phil Dunphy, the father from Modern Family, versus his wife. Women are portrayed over and again as competent and strong. Men are the bumbling fools. Alpha males, so to speak, are just not funny or appealing rather much of the time, according to woke sensibilities. And yes, I get it. It's a reaction to the past when men were always portrayed as being virtuous and women were always portrayed as subservient. But now the pendulum has swung in the other direction and we shouldn't be afraid to call this out and recognise it for what it is. I mean, today we can witness how far the pendulum has swung because look at this trans ideology that's happening right now. If a man transitions to a woman... He is now a she whose feelings you are hurting if you criticise them. If a woman transitions to a man, it was a woman's agency that made the decision in the first place. So she, now a he, needs to be validated and affirmed as well. With increasingly more, perhaps most of the academic and now legal class being made up of women, the concept of men being a subclass of human pervades education and academia. And the legal consequences of the decisions by women at the top are largely forgiven by society, at least if they're on the left politically anyway. But I don't just mean leaders. I also mean in day-to-day life amongst the average person. Look at what happens during divorce proceedings, custody battles and alimony payments. Now it's common knowledge in Western nations that these decisions favour the mother almost all of the time, despite the mother sometimes being the egregiously wrong party. Not always, not always, but often. If a woman has children when she's single, in a society like Australia at least, single parenting payments are awarded by the government, meaning women are either able to fund their poor decisions or lifestyle choices through the balance sheet of a current or former partner or just through taxpayers in society at large, through tax collection and income redistribution. New Zealand is similar in this regard. In this way, the government becomes the mother. Similarly to the way work ideology operates because the government is setting itself up to be incapable of being criticised because if you do, you're essentially hurting a woman's feelings by not being sufficiently grateful of everything she does by providing for you, doing an essential good, even if you can't see it in the present moment. 
this again echoes North Korea, where the mother party can't be criticised. Or if not can't be in the West, then shouldn't be. It's not a good look to criticise the welfare state, let's say. Where the rubber hits the road with the military, however, is that they are moving into the same sphere as evidenced by the evolution of transgenderism while performing military service, as well as the concept of being a military that cares and nurtures its soldiers. Have a look at Jameson's travels videos for further material about this. This then extends, presumably, to those that the military comes into contact with during its overseas deployments. The military has moved from being a father figure, the just-wait-until-your-father-gets-home kind of thing, heir of impending force to be reckoned with, to being another feminised institution which cannot be criticised lest its feelings be hurt. I mean, the recent US Army recruitment ad, which was heavily criticised by people, turned off its comments <laughs> on the YouTube video because you wouldn't want to hurt the feelings of the US Army, would you? The military is meant to be detached from emotions in order to carry out its duties effectively. And in a functioning democracy, it should be criticised and held to account for its actions. If we want to find a society where this weird concept of the military is prevalent, then we need look no further than, once again, North Korea. Criticism of the military there is absolutely beyond the pale because the military provides not merely stability but employment, a sense of political continuity, the same way a mother provides stability, a fairer share of resources to meet the needs of each member of the household, and a sense of continuity which binds the family together. To criticise that aspect of society or family is to bring the entire thing crashing down. In other words, in the West, what we have are the early signs where the military is concerned, and I don't think this is a slippery slope, not yet, but it is signs of a creeping kind of totalitarianism in which the government and the military cannot be as easily criticised because it has become a mothering-type institution or institutions. And to criticise means questioning the very underpinnings of our society. The rise of the feminisation of social issues, and by extension the government, which is seen as responsible for managing those in today's world, as well as the creeping feminisation of the military, puts these institutions into a new and untested space in Western societies. Even worse, putting the government and the military into that space has been tested before in other societies and was seen as reasons that democracy should be superseded or even ended entirely and the status quo of the mother being beyond criticism maintained on a permanent basis. All of this, to me, is reminiscent of Alan Watts' prickles and goo, or in language it's the booba-kiki dichotomy. Now, if you haven't seen Alan Watts' prickles and goo video right here, or you haven't heard him talk about this, then pause this video and go and watch it right now. It is crucial viewing to understand what I'm about to say, but also just because, you know, it's a few minutes long and it's deeply insightful. Now, Alan Watts never spoke about this prickles versus goo thing as being male versus female energy or the stereotypical more feminine versus masculine traits, but I will. Now, no value judgment is being made here. No value judgment is being made here. Like Watts, 
I think that prickles and goo, male and female, are both necessary, both necessary to understand the world because reality is prickles and goo or kiki and booba or as Alan says, prickly goo or gooey prickles. <laughs> prickles is kind of like the discrete, goo is like the continuous. Again, go watch the video. I fully admit, you know, <laughs> in terms of personality online, I'm more prickles than goo at times anyways. Catch me around my friends and I'm almost entirely goo. Prickly goo, perhaps. <laughs> but I'm not online. I get that. I want to speak clearly in this clipped sort of tone that Alan Watts talks about. And that's prickly. There are no contradictions in reality and I want to understand reality here. But, you know, personal relationships require goo because other people are often gooey. So you have to meet them in their gooey complexity. It's not like I'm a completely different person online and offline. It's just horses for courses. But this video, this podcast is not about me or personal relationships. Booba and kiki or prickles and goo or discrete and continuous are basically ways of talking about everything. Because everything consists of prickly discrete stuff and gooey continuous stuff. It's both together. We human beings are people and are universal, as I talk about so often here, and in principle can understand everything, or rather anything, but we tend to focus on certain things. Men, broadly speaking, tend to focus on prickles. Women, on the goo. Generally, generally. But it's true, there are masculine women and feminine men. Gay men are often thought feminine, but that's only half true. The other half are known as butch. <laughs> the former are camp. In the gay world, neither are judged as superior. They just aren't, no matter what some factions might say. The point I am making is about broad generalizations. I'm doing the James Damore thing, remember him? I'm talking about the mean, the average, when of course there's a bell curve. And we admit that populations of men and women have this bell curve distribution, but that's not to deny there isn't an average going on here with these traits. We don't deny the outliers exist, but means and medians exist. So let's go back to the military and what is regarded by many as the Western tendency recently of feminizing the military. The military needs to be prickles. It just does. Mothers need to be goo. Babies need love and doting. But there comes a time for prickles. Kids must learn about the harshness and sharpness of the world that they are being nurtured within. This isn't saying children need coercion. This isn't saying be mean to children. This is saying they need to be exposed to reality. Kids must learn about the harshness and sharpness of the world. The father traditionally serves that role for right or wrong. That's the traditional gender role. Fathers just traditionally have been a little more prickly. And it's not a bad thing at all. Nor is goo a bad thing. Both are needed to understand the dichotomies of the world. Light and shade, right and wrong, good and evil, creativity, criticism, conjecture, refutation. There exist dichotomies in the world. Success, failure. So it goes. Approaching them through Prickles and goo is needed. 
The military is prickles. Nursing is goo. Medicine is both. It's prickly goo. But there is pathological prickles and pathological goo. The latter is what Jordan Peterson, referring to Carl Jung, calls the devouring mother. One of the four types of mothering impulses, according to Jung. The devouring mother is pathological goo. Pathological prickles is male aggression that tips into initiating violence. Violent criminals, in other words. Men kill other people. They rape and they steal. Not that some women don't do this as well. Remember the distinction between the mean and the distribution. But women, when goo goes wrong, destroy lives not typically through violence and murder, although that can happen, again, means versus distributions. But women destroy people's lives through devouring, gossip, overprotection, authoritarianism, desiring control. The motherland, that's Russia. We'll do everything for you, says communism. We'll control you. Sure, they also use male violence, as Hitler did and Stalin did, but ultimately the state becomes the devouring mother in totalitarian regimes. It is both parents, mother and father, at the level of the state, prickles and goo, working hand in glove to tyrannise the world. But it begins with mothering at first, before dad gets called in. Wait until your father gets home. In other words, the military comes to us with friendly, soft overtones of like, well, we're here for you all of the time. We are you and you are us. And when you reject their overbearing softness and their attempt to be mother to all, then they say, well, now dad's here. And the military literally gets violent against its own people. This is what happens in totalitarian regimes. I'm not saying it's happened yet. I'm saying this is what goes on in places like China. Do we want a softer military? Do we want a mother military? Do we want a gooey military focused on LGBTQIA plus diversity? Do we want to show anything other than prickles to our enemy? There is a place for goo in the home, in welfare, charity and generosity. But in the military, that's prickles. In MMA and UFC, it's all prickles. The police are mainly prickles, but... They're gooey prickles. We want them to be nice at times, especially to law-abiding citizens and to some kinds of petty criminals. Police need to be able to show compassion. But there is much less place for compassion on the front lines of the military. Yes, absolutely, in the West, we take prisoners. We show mercy to the enemy who surrenders. But otherwise... It's win-win-win. The military is only ever used when civilization is threatened. So we want prickles. We don't need soft, inclusive mothering. Let's welcome everyone. No, we want hard, difficult to get in, hard to get through, tough, protective father. That's the military. It's not inclusive. It's a very exclusive club of tough men and women. It's not about love and inclusion. It's the bouncer at the door with a scowl on his face excluding people. Sure, on a very tight leash of the manager of the club, the democratically elected government, in other words, in the West. But that's because the bouncer is ever looking outwards at those who aren't inside yet. He's prickly. He, the masculine energy, we want that guy... He's the guy even at the gay club who's letting everyone from all walks of life into the club. But you want a particularly tough guy at the gay club, let me tell you. 
You don't want the camp feminine twink standing at the door deciding who comes in and out. He'll be walked over. You want the big butch guy who knows how to fight. He's not tolerating any BS. And when the manager comes to the bouncer and says, that guy there, he's not coming in. Well, that guy isn't getting past the bouncer. That's the military. That's our military. And traditionally, that's been our military. He's the biggest, baddest guy around. So it's quite right that people are upset about anything that lowers standards or makes the military seem like they're doing anything other than being a scary fighting force, ready to die for the rest of us because that's their job. It's not to provide opportunity or to make anyone feel good about themselves. It's about doing a particular job, to be the prickles so that other people in our society are free to be as gooey as they like. Check out the differences between advertisements. Many people have done analysis of these. There is the American Army advertisement for recruitment, and I won't play it here because it's copyrighted material, but take a look. Link's in the description. Compare it to the Marines recruitment advertisement from exactly the same country, from the US, and see which one a young boy or even a young girl would want to join. What looks more heroic for a person who is thinking of going into the military? Which one would you prefer? And also, compare the US Army advertisement to the way in which the militaries of Russia and China recruit their people. Is it any wonder people are criticizing this impulse from certain parts of the West for making our militaries seem softer? It's quite right that people are upset about anything that lowers standards or makes our military seem like they're doing anything other than being a scary fighting force, ready to die for the rest of us. These people are heroes. It's their job. It's not the place of the military to provide opportunity to everyone or to make anyone feel good about themselves, even if that's what happens with soldiers and Marines and sailors and airmen. Yes, it does help some people to find their inner strength, to improve their self-esteem. But ultimately, the military is about doing a particular job, to be the prickles so that other people in our society are free to be as gooey as they like. Credit once more to Jeremy Allen for much of the material here. Until next time, bye-bye.